Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Grace be with you all. You know, we live definitely in a how-to culture, probably more than any society that's ever existed. In fact, I mean, we can have at our fingertips at any moment the access to explain pretty much how to do almost anything. I mean, how many of y'all have done a repair, honestly, in your house that you would never attempted before YouTube existed? Raise your hand. Car repairs. I mean, I've done some car repairs that I had never dreamed possible that would happen because you can just watch that video, see what's going on, follow along the best you can, and most of the time, you can get it pretty close to being right. Sometimes it turns out to be a disaster, right? Um, I, I've done some crazy stuff. In fact, uh, in, in January of last year, Michelle decided to get chickens. And the problem was, uh, which we knew nothing about chickens, we're not farmers, okay? So chickens can, can fly somewhat, you know? They can like fly over six-foot fences, and so we had to figure out what to do. And so I learned on YouTube how to clip the wings of a chicken so that they can't fly over the fence. And it's turned out pretty good. Well, here we are a year later, and there's not been one chicken to fly over our fence since I clipped those wings. It's pretty amazing the things you can learn. I, I try to teach, teach my kids different sports, uh, you know, things about sports by watching a video on how to do a crossover dribble or, uh, or how to shoot better or something. It didn't work out so well, but I tried. Uh, I take that back, Millie. You're, you're a great shooter. Um, but uh, it, for, for me one time, I, it actually turned out to be a benefit. And uh, Katie is going to remember this because she was a student back then. Uh, I was challenged by a couple of students in our class about a 35-yard field goal. Do you remember that? They said, there's no way that you can kick a 35-yard field goal. And I was like, I can do it. I promise you I can do it. And they're like, okay. The kid, his name was Jim, he said, I, I bet you, uh, I'll mow your yard if you can do it. I, I, we'll do a bet. And I was like, sure, be glad to try it. All right, let's do it. And so I watched a YouTube video on how to kick. Now, I was a soccer player. I had the leg strength, but kicking a football is much different than kicking um, a soccer ball. Um, and so I had to watch a video on how to do that correctly. Went out. First time, nailed, witness here, nailed the 35-yard field goal right through the uprights. Um, and I texted the guy on, on Thursday when I was working on the sermon. I was like, you still haven't mowed my grass, bro. Come on, I need you to mow it. And uh, anyway, we can learn a lot of stuff. We're a how-to culture. We like to execute. We like application. And I think that's one of the, maybe the downside sometimes, though. It can be a negative because a lot of times we're so interested in the doing that we fail to see that our faith life comes from our relationship with Christ. It comes with our relationship with God. And I think that the verse in Jeremiah really sums us up better than anything else in Scripture by saying in Jeremiah 9, 24, it says, But those who wish to boast 
should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that you know me. And those of you who are in relationships know that marriage and relationships are not how-to. You don't have a checklist of how to have a better marriage and just go through and systematically check off the list and all of a sudden you become a better spouse. There's a relational dynamic that exists that goes beyond just executing the punch list or doing the stuff. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. God has made our hearts that we can only be big enough to worship one thing or one person at a time. And he says, boast only in this that you know me, that you have a relationship with me. So what does that have to do with this ending of 1 Timothy as we're winding down to the end of this book? Well, Timothy is struggling. We've talked about that over the, the weeks here. He is pretty much isolated. He's struggling with, okay, how do I fit in here? Paul sent me to this church in Ephesus to set this place in order, and now I'm struggling to stand. And Paul has encouraged Timothy to stand firm, to persevere, to remain true to his calling. And he did not give him solely just a list of stuff to do. Here at the end, Paul points Timothy to God, his presence, his power, and his glory as the motivation and power for his obedience. His motivation and the power for his obedience to execute the stuff has to flow from God and God alone. Otherwise, Timothy's going to fall away. And so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, and then next week we'll finish off the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, as we look at this section, I want to look at you to see how Paul directs Timothy to the person and character of God. Verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray and let's look at this passage. Father God, we must admit to you right off the bat, that many other things come before you most days in our life. God, we admit that we don't see you the way that we need to see you. And as Isaiah saw you high and lifted up, and all he could do was respond and fall on his face. Say, woe is me. And God, we want to have a bigger vision of you. We want to see you for who you really are. And you know we struggle with that. And God, I pray today that through your word and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of every believer, that you might reveal yourself bigger to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many people like to be alone. I'm not one of the people who like to spend a lot of time alone. 
Timothy was alone. And it's one thing to be alone, like isolated alone. Sometimes it's good for your creativity. Sometimes it can help you refocus and rethink about the things that you value in life. But to be alone in a crowd is even tougher. And that's really where Timothy found himself. He was in a church where he didn't have much support. He was making enemies. And clearly, scripture from this, this, these scriptures, it shows us that Timothy may have been tempted to compromise. Scripture tells us he was young, relatively speaking, and there were people in the church who were despising his youth. And it seems like maybe he wasn't as gentle and meek, as peacemaking as he ought to be, because, again, probably his youth there, and we know that especially young men, we can be very argumentative and we can really, really fight battles that we shouldn't fight at times. And, and so his, his youth was being uh, looked down upon. And then John MacArthur writes that Timothy was young and battled youth, youthful lusts, as was pointed out in the book, which tends to drain your self-confidence away. And so Timothy was struggling. And it appears like there was temptation for him to fall away, back away from his ministry altogether. And so in verse 13, Paul brings us home. He's coming to the end of this letter, and he brings it home. He says, I charge you, and then verse 14, to keep the commandment. I charge you to keep the commandment, okay? So if you look at this, that's a bit ambiguous, all right? What's he talking about? The, the commandment. What commandment are you pointing to, Paul? Well, commentators will differ somewhat on exactly what Paul is pointing to, but I think the best educated guess is to go back to chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a watch on yourself. Watch your teaching. And he says, persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So everything that was been entrusted to Timothy, the gospel he's been entrusted with, he's been entrusted with the responsibility for this church. And Paul says, his very, your very perseverance in faith and ministry is what I'm after, Timothy. I need you to persevere in your calling, in your ministry. Stick with it. Don't quit. And he's writing to motivate him. And Paul grounds the commandment he gives to Timothy here in the presence and power of God. Like I said, look what he's, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. So he's like calling a witness. I'm calling God to be the witness for this charge that I'm making, that he's the witness that, Timothy, you're responsible for keeping this. And so he's saying an awareness of God's presence is the ultimate motivation for him to keep going. Because you get your eyes on the problems, you get your eyes on the people, you get your eyes on situations and circumstances, you're going to fall away. Because we can't help it, because life's tough, it's difficult. Ministry's tough, ministry's difficult. And he says, keep awareness of God, and then verse 13, he adds to it, he says, who gives life to all things. So he's telling Timothy in a very real way, he's saying, you don't need to fear, because God is alive, he's well and the worst thing that somebody could do to you is to take away your life. And Timothy, God, is the one who gives life to all things. He holds life in his hands. And so if God has your very life and your very future in your hands, there's no need to fear. There's no need to be afraid. Don't quit. Don't stop. Just this past week, the last seven days, I've had two guys who I knew well in ministry who have called it quits, who said, you know what, I'm not, this is just 
I'm not, I'm not in this. It's, it's too much. It's hard. It's difficult. And then I had another friend who I worked with in Dallas for years, probably one of the last guys that I ever imagined would be out of ministry, and he's working in a furniture store now. Don't know the whole story of what happened there. But dealing with people is tough. And you don't have to be a ministry to know that. You know that just working with people is a hard thing. And we can't help but bring ourselves into the equation as well as sinners. We're going to, as Timothy did, bring his baggage, his sin, his struggles into this ministry. But I think we can lose sight in all the struggles and the day-to-day conflicts and, and dealings that we have to do, do, do every day. We lose sight on how important ministry is. Not just vocational ministry, not just elders and deacons, but all of us, all of our calling. That we forget what really matters. We do. And we have to sometimes just pull away and say, God, I have lost sight of what truly matters in this life. And what really, really matters for eternity. What makes an eternal impact. And that's why you're here, I hope. And that's why we do what we do. We preach, we teach, we share the message. We go and we make disciples. Because why? God's not sending down an angel to do this job of ministry. And Jesus is not going to come again himself to do this ministry. He's called us, his church, to be the people who do this. And failures are going to happen. Discouragements are going to happen. Pressure is going to happen. Resistance is going to come. Oppression is going to happen. But Paul's writing to Timothy to tell him, hey, it's difficult. It takes courage, but don't quit. And his antidote for Timothy in this struggle is to look at the character of God. Why? Because the most radical treatment for fear is a greater fear. The most radical treatment for fear is to realize there's something much bigger which we need to fear. So we fight fear with fear. And he's saying, Timothy, you must conquer fear through fear. And he's referring to the fear of God. Now, the fear of God is something that a lot of people really struggle with this concept. They're like, I don't understand like God's love and you know, God's all about you know, just generosity and, and giving. I don't understand why we should have a fear of God. Well, let me say a couple things about fear, fear of God. One is, if you're an unbeliever, you better be terrified of God. And that's not just preacher talk here. That's the word of God. That judgment from God is on you and it will be fully realized one day in eternity. And there's no mistake in that. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. And so if you're an unbeliever, while seeing Jesus and his greatness and his glory should be your central motivation, I don't think that fear is a bad motivation as well. Because God is real. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And then for the believer, it's different. It's a different type of fear. I love Psalm 2, verse 11. It kind of brings together this idea because it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What he's saying is God rules, and we celebrate his rule. And so as Christians, we don't have to shudder that we mess up or do have a mistake, and God's just going to take a bat and whack us over the head with that because, oh, wow, you know, sorry, God. And, and our culture has distorted this idea to make fear of God for the believer 
to be something that it's not. I grew up in a culture like that. I understand those who have a wrong perspective on God, how that can just, just make you cave in upon yourself. It's, it's a tough thing not to understand what fear of God means. It's an awe. It's a, it's a revering him. It's, it's just an incredible respect that's even hard to put into words. And the thing is, when we start to begin to, to backpedal and say, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a respect, then a lot of people are like, oh, I can live with that because, you know, God's just like this nice guy up in, in the heavens and, you know, I, I respect him, but I'm not really intimidated by his greatness. And in Christ, we don't have to be intimidated, but we need to see God for his worth and his glory and who he really is because that is a huge mistake for Believers as well as unbelievers. Hebrews 12, I think it'll be on the screen, 28 and 29. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. So in a culture that is all, even a Christian culture, it's all against, like, uh, we, don't, we don't motivate it through the, through the negatives. It's all positive. You know, reinforce. Just say the good stuff. I'm afraid in this culture that we've lost sight of, really, the greatness and glory of God. And as I said, some of it is a good step back. In, in a former generation, there was so much intimidation. God's going to get you for doing that. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is seeing God high and lifted up. The, the God who gives life to all things. The God who controls your conception in the womb till you breathe your last breath. The sovereign God. And Timothy needed to be reminded of this. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Timothy, don't fear man. Fear God. The worst thing they can do is to bring about my will is to bring about your death, which I'm the one that has your days numbered in the first place. Interesting fact that we learned from a book that was written in 1563 called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. It reports that Timothy, passed down through the generations, that Timothy remained in Ephesus until 97 AD. And during this pagan celebration that was going on there in the city, Timothy goes out in the streets and begins to confront the people for their idolatry. And people literally take clubs and they beat him. And in the book it writes this, it said, in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days later. Timothy ultimately paid the biggest price. But was God surprised? Oh, don't, don't do that to Timothy. No. God has our life in his hands. And so Paul knows this. And Paul himself writes, you know, for me to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So he says, Timothy, keep on keeping on. Keep doing. Don't quit. God's the witness. He holds life in his hands. And then verse 13, he also calls another witness to this commandment to Timothy. 
He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession. So he's saying simply what Paul said in other places, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, Hebrews says. Keep your eyes on Jesus, Timothy. And he's, he's given Timothy the brave example of Christ before Pontius Pilate. Obviously, Timothy knew the gospel. He knew the story that Jesus stood there knowing what he would face, the horrible death, the beating, the separation from God. Yet he didn't allow the humiliation, the fear, and the pain to cause him to back down. So he says, witness number one, God himself who holds your life in his hands. Witness number two, Jesus Christ who has been through what you are going through, Timothy, and so much more. And he didn't back down. He gave a good confession. And so I'm charging you with God and Jesus as the witness to keep the commandment. And he says he describes the commandment, it seems, unstained and free of reproach. But commentators differ on whether this is describing the, the commandment or describing Timothy's response to it. I think it seems pretty clear that it's, re, that it's about Timothy's response. Timothy could be muddied in his response to this. And so he's saying, do what you were commanded to do and do it without fault, without blame. Timothy, do ministry and do it with the right intentions, from the right heart. And you do that by keeping your eyes upon God, your eyes upon Jesus. He doesn't say this here. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, your ministry can't go wrong. Even if they take your life, it's still in my will. It's in my hands. So don't quit. Show integrity. And remember the last few weeks, Paul cautioned Timothy about the love for money, the love for doing this for some other motive other than God's glory. And he said that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so he's cautioning Timothy, don't fall into these patterns. Don't just go about and keep doing the ministry and just do it mindlessly and do it for wrong motives, for money or for people's approval. He's saying, do it for God without fault, without blame. And clearly, it doesn't mean to go sinless, not to sin. You would never make a mistake. Obviously, God knows that we're human, and God knows that we struggle. And as long as we're in this flesh, it's going to be a battle. But nevertheless, he says, Timothy, integrity matters. Your character matters. And you need to rest in God and rest in His grace and His faithfulness. I read this in New Morning Mercies have to continue my quotes of New Morning Mercies every week here. It says, God is faithful and good even when you're not. God is faithful and good even when you're not. God doesn't quit on us. Jesus didn't quit on us. Timothy, don't quit on God. So God's the witness. He holds life and death. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he gives one more motivation here. He says, Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 14. Do what you were commanded to do without fault or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Timothy, keep going. Jesus is coming back. Don't doubt that. You follow a risen Savior, and he's coming for you. I don't think I've heard more in my lifetime than in the last few weeks People say this, I'm so ready for Jesus to come back. 
And usually it's followed like, I don't think things could get any worse than this. It's, it's the worst it's ever been. Well, it probably isn't the worst it's ever been, just to let you know. And I'm quick to point that out. I would not want to have been a Christian in the early days of the Roman Empire when they literally took Christians and put up on stakes, stakes and lit them on fire to light the city. The whole lions and tearing apart the Christian thing, we're not there, okay? So it's not the worst it's ever been, but it's bad. We know that. This world and its systems are working overtime against God. They're trying to stifle the name of Jesus. But Jesus is greater, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to come back to rule and reign. And nobody can stand against him. And Timothy, that's your confidence. And it may feel like, Timothy, that things are about as bad as they're ever going to get, but you know what? The return of Jesus is at the proper time, which he will display at the proper time. And I'm sure Timothy and any Christian alive at that point would not have thought God's timetable would be as long as it has been. But it doesn't change the fact that, one, God's timetable is not our timetable. A thousand years is one day to God. He's not constrained by time. He's not wrapped in or motivated by urgency. God does what he wants to do. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, right at the end of the Bible, the writer writes, John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then he prays, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. Hasten the day. Come and restore your kingdom. So Timothy, don't quit. And I can just see the dialogue in Timothy's head as he's reading this. Paul saying, finish strong, Timothy. Don't quit. And Timothy's like, how do I do that? And Paul says, keep the command. Endure. Stick with it until you die, which is in God's hands, or until Jesus returns. Don't lose hope. Timothy, it's tough. I'm young. I struggle. There's so much pressure on me. People are difficult. The world is falling apart. The wicked are prospering. And what does Paul do next? In 15, Paul says, let's remember who God is. And he does this, writes this beautiful doxology. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as I was studying this passage, and I was, I was looking at ways to, in order to present this. And I got to these last verses. You know, I thought, there's nothing that need be, needs to be said about this. It just needs to be listened to. It needs to be received. The Holy Spirit needs to take these amazing words and expose the idols of our heart where these little teeny gods that we think at the moment are so important to us. And we know from experience that give it a year or two, and these gods will have run their course and will be on to the next thing, usually much shorter than that. 
do we really need to break apart the character of God? We just need to be overwhelmed by the character of God. And I think that's what Paul is doing for Timothy here. He's saying, remember who God is. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't consider it. Stick with it. Faith comes by hearing. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What are you seeking to give you what only God can give? What are you pursuing that can any way, shape, or form top what we just heard? He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of Lord, lords, who, dwells, who alone dwells in immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Why are we spending our time honestly thinking the world is falling apart? That we think that some way, shape, or form, that come Wednesday, life's going to be so awful and out of control. I'm sorry, but he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and glory in eternal dominion. Amen. Why are we living in fear of humans, people, circumstances, events? Why? God holds your life in your hands, in his hands. He knows when your day's coming where you die. Jesus set the ultimate example. He went and did what we couldn't do. And we had the very righteousness of Christ. And we stand before this terrifying, consuming God, and we can stand before him without fault because of Jesus Christ, who gave his life on our behalf. And if you know him, you have this amazing respect and awe and reverence. And it should motivate us. But it doesn't. Why? Because we've taken our eyes off of God. We've taken our eyes off of Jesus. And we've forgotten this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's one thing to get a bigger view of God from 10.30 to 11.45. It's another thing to get up tomorrow morning, rub the sleep out of your eyes, grab your coffee, and say, God, I want to see you high lift and lifted up this morning. But that is what we need to do day in and day out, every day. 
God, the only way that I'm going to defeat my fears and live the ministry you've called me to live and not quit and not live in fear of people, circumstances, and events is to see you every single day. And some days that may be explosion. Some days it may just be, God, I just don't have a lot of emotion today, but I'm bringing you all that I have at this moment because that's what worship is. I'm just giving you all that I have at this moment. I'm giving it all to you because you're deserving the only wise, sovereign God who's a consuming fire. As we sing this last song, I want you to just really ask God to show you more of himself. Enough of himself to roll out of bed tomorrow and to be in his word. Enough of himself to be bold for the gospel. Enough of himself to sit down at the dinner table and be willing to open your Bible and say, hey kids, let me, let me tell you what God's doing in my life. Because when you see God and you fear God, these other fears seem so trivial, so weak. You defeat that fear with a greater fear. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that we can even say your name today because of Jesus. That we can even resonate with the words that are on these pages and this letter that was written so long ago because you've given us your spirit. and You've allowed us to, to see you. And not just to see you, but to serve you and be your ambassadors. And God, I pray that we will begin to submit our idols to you to confess those things to you that are more important than you, God. And help us just to, to, to be before you this moment and give us a vision of you in Jesus' name. You know, I like to close up with the head, the heart, and the hands. Here's what I want you to take away. Our God is a consuming fire. You need to know that to be true. I need to know that to be true. And then our heart. God is for you in Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is for you, not against you. And it's not a fear to run. It's a fear to embrace. And then I'm going to give you the most pedestrian application possible. Here's what I thought. Every one of us almost in here probably pray before prayer, meal prayers. We pray those prayers. We sit down with our family, pray. We do it at lunch. It's part of our culture. If we could redeem those prayers that you already pray and say, take a breath before every prayer that you pray and say, God, I'm talking to you. Sovereign, eternal, no one can enter your presence. I'm about to bless this food, but I'm talking to you. If we could just pause at that moment every single time, three times a day, I promise you, God's going to begin to work in your heart and work in your family. Parents, your kids are going to be like, something's different. The fear of, the God, of God has changed. We're not scared to break out of our comfort zone because we have a greater fear. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sits on the throne. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for this letter that was written to Timothy so long ago because we are Timothy in so many ways. We're fearful. We fail. We feel like throwing in the towel. We struggle with fear of people. We question our calling. We let people be way too big in our eyes. And thank you for the reminder so long ago in your inspired, inerrant word of who you are. And help us to live with that mindset this week and the rest of our days. God, give dads and moms the boldness not to pray some fancy King James English prayer, but just to acknowledge your greatness every step of the way. In Jesus' name.